You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. If you're new to the podcast, some context for you. I've gotten a ton of value out of doing group therapy and watching others process their shit. In group, I can see other people's patterns and behaviors much more clearly because they aren't my patterns and behaviors, but rather they're adjacent to mine. It's such a relief. I want to share this relief with you via this podcast, wherein I practice skills while actually in the thick of shit. Each episode, I typically do an introduction and provide some context. Then I play a recording of me actively dealing with shit. This isn't me talking about psychology or theories. I'm actually in distress, having strong emotions and strong urges. You're going to hear me crying, angry, numb. But my intention is always to move through an emotion, never to stay there. So stick with me and we'll actually come out on the other side by the end of the episode. Alrighty, let's hop to it. Welcome, welcome. I am sick right now. My voice doesn't feel great. Um, So you get to listen to me sounding like I do currently. I, uh, we've been having some bad forest fires and I made the ineffective choice to go run stairs yesterday while it was super smoky and I wore my N95 mask the entire time and yet I woke up with a super sore throat and I feel like I've been hit by a bus so great fun anywho welcome back to let's therapize that shit it's been a hot minute since I've posted an episode Lots been going on, and I haven't really wanted to sit down and edit anything together. But being sick means I have a lot of downtime to just sit around and do nothing. So here we are. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. Brief orientation before we start. Most of the skills I reference are from the DBT manual by Marshall Linehan. Uh, DBT stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy, and it is my therapy of choice. The DBT manual is linked in the description, both in PDF form and where you can buy a hard copy. And whenever I'm quoting the DBT manual or really anyone else's work other than my own, I turn on some reverb so that I sound like I'm in a mausoleum or a mausoleum bathroom. (laughs) So that's fun. Um, The bulk of this episode, the recordings that I'm about to play for you of me using skills in real time was recorded in March, specifically March 25th, 2022. And I'm recording this commentary on October 18th, 2022. So like seven months later, I'm a bit behind. Some background into what we're about to hear. I have suspected that I might have autism or ASD, autism spectrum disorder, Uh, for a while now, but never did any research or looked into getting diagnosed because every time I had the thought, maybe I'm autistic, I dismiss it because I don't match the symptoms that I'm familiar with. Like I don't match the stereotype of an autistic person as portrayed by the media. But a friend of mine's partner was getting assessed and my friend was taking some of the questionnaires with them in support and to kind of compare their experiences. And my friend sent me a link and was all, um, you might want to take a look into this. So back in February, I took several autism questionnaires, uh, 
including the RADS-R, which is the Ritvo Autism Asperger Diagnostic Scale Revised. I took the ASPE, I took the RBQ2A, which is for repetitive behaviors, and several others. And I kept getting scores that were significantly past the threshold for an autism diagnosis. So I started looking into whether it was worth getting a formal diagnosis, like what the pros and cons of getting diagnosed would be, what would be involved in the process, the challenges of getting diagnosed as an adult, and also as not a man, um, you know, the whole shebang. And once I decided I wanted to pursue a diagnosis, I started researching diagnosticians who work with adults. I created a spreadsheet, because of course I did, (laughs) with 57 people in Washington state who've been named on various directories for adults with autism. And I sent out emails asking if they had availability and if they would be willing to work with me. Of the 57 folks I researched, I emailed seven of them. Of those, I only heard back from two, and they wrote back within a couple days of each other. So the first recording you're going to hear is of me reacting to the second email. And to give you some context about the differences between these two people, option one was a diagnostician whose process included traditional intake documentation. So, you know, education, work, health, family history stuff, seven to nine hours of testing, interviews with caregivers, a review of any other relevant documentation like school, medical, and employment records, writing up a report, and then a feedback session. And her process, the process for option one, is rigorous enough to hold up in court Um, It can be used as forensic evidence, and overall it would cost upwards of $4,000, which would not be covered by my insurance. And another thing, uh, her emails, I didn't like them. Like, I didn't feel great when I read her emails. I'm not going to get into the details of why, but it just, I didn't feel comfortable with her. And so in the recording you're about to hear, I call this first option the forensic person or the forensic option. That's how I refer to her. Option two is a diagnostician whose process included traditional intake documentation, like option one, so education, work, health, and family history. Two extensive assessments for me to take, so the RADS are, which is as I said earlier, the Ritvo Autism Asperger Diagnostic Scale Revised, and the SRS-2, which is the Social Responsiveness Scale 2nd Edition. Her process also included a two- to three-hour interview with me and then writing a report. So overall, option two is much less rigorous in terms of corroborating evidence, like there's no interview with caregivers or looking at past employment or educational records. It relies heavily on my own reporting. And in the recording you're about to hear, I'm reacting to option two's email that I got right before going and running the stairs. So you're going to be hearing me in between flights of stairs with dramatically low audio quality because I was having this reaction and processing these thoughts while running the stairs, which are near a park. So there's a fair amount of background noise, and I'm sorry for that. Alrighty, past joy, take it away. I'm watching myself react to the possibility of seeing this person about ASD who emailed today that it was just an interview with me and my own questionnaires and stuff. And it would be like a two hour interview and that would be it. And it would be $1,500. And I realized I'm having the thoughts that that would not be enough. That would not be enough to convince dad that this is so. That I need to go with like the forensic person, the person whose methods are rigorous enough to be used as forensic evidence in court, who would, you know, it would be like a $4,000 assessment and they would interview caregivers or partners or what have you. And I am watching myself give that person more weight like that that's a better option even though i felt worse 
with them. And I had the thought that I would definitely not get diagnosed with them because I would not pass, I would not cross whatever threshold is required. And I had concerns over them interviewing either mom or dad about how I was as a child. And I had all of these issues with it. And that one still feels better than this new one that doesn't interview other people and that isn't as rigorous because it would be more likely to be overturned, like that somebody would be able to argue against it. And I would have less confidence in the diagnosis. And the whole point of the diagnosis is to be confident because I don't have the confidence in my own experience. I don't validate my own experience as valid. I require somebody else to tell me that it is. And so I'm having the thought that with the more forensic person, I would have more confidence that their assessment of me is accurate, which is ironic because I'm relying on somebody else to tell me what my experience is. And that's bullshit. Anyway, those are the thoughts that I'm having. Okay, so that clip is not nearly as clear as I would like it to be. So let me summarize what you just heard. I was having the thought that option two, the less rigorous option, would not be enough to convince my dad, and also me, that I actually have autism. I was having the thought that option one, the forensic option, would be more accurate and rigorous, and that their findings would be irrefutable. And I was also having the thought that I would not be diagnosed by that option, by option one, that I wouldn't meet their more rigorous criteria. Whereas with option two, I had the thought that while I would more likely be diagnosed by them, I would have less confidence in that diagnosis. And I summed it all up by saying that the whole point of a diagnosis for me is to have confidence in the results because I don't have confidence in my own experience. I require someone else to tell me what my own experience is. And as I said in the recording, that's bullshit, which is a judgment. So you were hearing me use the mindfulness to current thoughts skill here. And I'd like to take a moment to go over what that skill is. So mindfulness of current thoughts is a reality acceptance skill. It's a skill that helps us accept the reality of our situation. And reality acceptance skills are distress tolerance skills. One of the things that cause distress is a lack of acceptance around what is actually so. Other reality acceptance skills are listed out on Distress Tolerance Handout 10, and they include radical acceptance, turning the mind, willingness, half-smile and willing hands, and the one you were just listening to, allowing the mind mindfulness of current thoughts. Those skills are skills that we can use to accept reality. So what is mindfulness of current thoughts? I'm going to be reading from Distress Tolerance Handout 15 here. And again, there's links in the description. So how does one practice mindfulness of current thoughts? There's four kind of overarching steps, which are one, observe your thoughts. Two, adopt a curious mind. Three, remember you are not your thoughts. And four, don't block or suppress thoughts. So getting into each of those a little bit more here. Step one, observe your thoughts as waves coming and going, not suppressing thoughts, not judging thoughts. Like there are no good or bad thoughts. Thoughts are things our brain does. Our brain thinks. And like our, like our heart beats, our brain is going to generate thoughts. Not all of them are going to be winners. Not all of them will be factually accurate, their thoughts. It's what our brain does. So getting back to how to observe our thoughts, we do this by acknowledging their presence, not keeping thoughts around, not analyzing thoughts, practicing willingness, stepping back and observing thoughts as they run in and out of your mind. Step two is adopt a curious mind. And how do we do that? 
Ask, where do my thoughts come from? Watch and see. Notice that every thought that comes also goes out of your mind. Observe, but do not evaluate your thoughts. Let go of judgments. Step three here is remember you are not your thoughts. Do not necessarily act on thoughts. Remember times when you have had very different thoughts. Remind yourself that catastrophic thinking is emotion mind. Remember how you think when you are not feeling such intense suffering and pain. And then step four is don't block or suppress thoughts. Ask, what sensations are these thoughts trying to avoid? Turn your mind to the sensation, then come back to the thought. Repeat several times. Step back. Allow your thoughts to come and go as you observe your breath. Play with your thoughts. Repeat them out loud over and over as fast as you can. Sing them. Imagine the thoughts as the words of a clown, as recordings getting all tangled up, as cute animals you can cuddle up to, as bright colors running through your mind, as only sounds. Try loving your thoughts. So in the recording you just heard, I was using mindfulness to current thoughts and labeling my thoughts as thoughts. I could have said, I'm not going to get diagnosed with a more rigorous forensic person, which treats that as a certainty. Like this is fact. I will not get diagnosed by the more rigorous forensic person. And it's also fortune telling. Like I'm, I'm predicting how the future will go with certainty. Instead, what I actually said was, I'm having the thought that I won't be diagnosed with a more rigorous forensic person. And it's weird. I don't... It's strange to me that it works because it seems overly simple. Like, why does saying I'm having the thought matter? And in this instance, it mattered because I actually have no idea how the future will go. In declaring this is the fact of how the future will go, that's fortune telling. I'm trying to divine the future. And it it makes sense that my brain does that. Like that thought comes from somewhere. It's trying to protect me from something. And it doesn't point towards the actual facts. Like I can have the thought that I'm a pink elephant. And it is a fact that I'm having that thought. And the I'm a pink elephant is not the fact. This is a really like, this one's hard to wrap my head around. It took a lot of practice to wrap my head around this because we relate to our thoughts as fact. And typically it's, it's kind of like relating to movies as documentaries. And maybe as small children, we do that. But by the time we reach, you know, middle childhood, like we understand that dinosaurs can't sing. So Barney's not real, you know. We understand that, you know, birds can't talk. So like Big Bird is not real. Throughout, throughout my life, at least, like I've related to my thoughts as the facts of the situation rather than as a projection, um, a thing my brain does. Like that's what my brain is going to turn out. Sausage making machines make sausage. <laughs> my brain makes thoughts. <laughs> And not all of them are going to be winners. Okay, so the next clip takes place eight minutes later, eight minutes after the ending of the, the previous clip. As I was doing the stairs, I was noticing a pattern about needing to be believed, needing to convince people. And I'm going to reference a texting conversation that I had with a guy that I was sort of kind of dating for a couple months. Didn't end well. But this dude randomly texts me a couple times a year, even though the last time I saw him was five years ago, and it didn't end well. So it's anyone's guess as to why he's texting me still. But I've chosen not to block him from texting me, and I will explain why in the clip. Um, I will also beep out his name for privacy reasons. So here we go. I also just realized one of the reasons why I 
haven't historically had boundaries with men who are gross at best, abusive at worst, is I need them to cross a threshold where it is obvious to other people because I don't, I have it that if I tell other people this person's being gross, I won't be believed unless there's some obvious visible evidence that I can take and show. And it's one of the reasons why like, I didn't want to block from being able to text me because I needed to document that he kept reaching out even if I, even after I told him not to because it was only if I documented it that I could prove it to dad that it had happened because I didn't think he would believe me or that he would think it was that bad. And it turns out that even if he does believe me, he doesn't think it's that bad because he can't, he can't conceive of my experience because he's never been in a situation where he was scared of a romantic partner or in pain because of a romantic partner. So it begs the question, what would I do if I accepted that my dad cannot validate me, cannot understand my experience, cannot see how bad it is, even when there is evidence, cannot understand how bad it is, even when there is evidence. What would I do if I accepted that all those things are so? And the thing I would do is I would stop confiding in him about how I feel. I would stop sharing with him my experiences because he cannot validate them. Feels like there needs to be something else, something more physical, like mom's door lock. But I guess stopping talking to him about my thoughts and feelings about my experience, stopping talking to him about my experience, I think is a thing. Because I can still talk to him about other things. I'm choosing not to talk to him about any subjective experiences. How about that? Okay, at the very end there, I said, I feel like there needs to be something more physical. And then what I said next was a bit garbled. What I said was, I feel like there needs to be something more physical, like with mom and the door lock. If you're new to the podcast, first off, welcome. And second off, um, I've talked about this quite a bit that I live with my parents and that for um, the last 11 years since I moved back home, my mom has not been able to stop herself from walking into my room without knocking. And in episode seven on radical acceptance, I asked the question, what would I do if I accepted that my mom can't stop herself from walking into my room without knocking? And the answer felt like, I'm sure it's obvious to you, get a fucking door lock. But for the 11 years prior to that, I would judge my mom and try and persuade her, argue with her, yell at her, cry at her, a whole host of things to try and get her to stop coming in. And all that got me for 11 years was angrier and angrier because I had the judgment, she should listen to me. She should be able to stop herself. She also had that judgment of herself. She should be able to stop herself. She should be able to change her behavior. And it wasn't until I asked the question, what would I do if I accepted that my mom can't stop herself from coming into my room, that I was able to finally see that I could put a lock on my door. And that's very satisfying because it's a physical thing that I can do to enforce a boundary which is why at the end of the last recording, I said, I feel like there needs to be something more physical with my dad. So back to the recording you just heard, I was practicing radical acceptance by asking the question, what would I do if I accepted that my dad cannot validate me, cannot understand my experience, cannot see how bad it is, cannot understand how bad it is, what would I do if I accepted that all of these things are so? So let's talk about acceptance for a second here. Acceptance is also a distress tolerance skill in the same school as mindfulness of current thoughts. It is a reality acceptance skill as stated on distress tolerance handout 10. And this is one of the 
the skills that I have the most episodes on. I'm not even going to tell you what episodes I mention acceptance in because it's almost everyone. It's the one I need to practice the most because it's the one I'm the least effective at. Like I don't, I'm not reliable to use this skill and I'm not reliable to use it effectively. So I need to practice it a lot. So radical acceptance, this is distress tolerance handout 11. We use it when you cannot keep painful events and emotions from coming your way. What is radical acceptance? Radical means all the way, complete and total. It is accepting in your mind, your heart, and your body. It's when you stop fighting reality, stop throwing tantrums because reality is not the way you want it, and let go of bitterness. What has to be accepted? An excellent question, I'll tell you. So here are the things that have to be accepted. Number one, reality is as it is. The facts about the past and the present are the facts, even if you don't like them. Number two, there are limitations on the future for everyone, but only realistic limitations need to be accepted. Three, everything has a cause, including events and situations that cause you pain and suffering. Number four, life can be worth living even with painful events in it. And finally, why accept reality? Well, number one, rejecting reality does not change reality. Oh, if only it did. Number two, changing reality requires first accepting reality. In the same way that like, if you're lost and in a scary part of town that you don't want to be in, and you want to find your way home, if you go to your map app on your phone, you're gonna type in your home address or whatever, but your phone can't tell you how to get there until you turn on your location. You have to know where you're starting from, even if you don't like where you're starting from. That's like a necessary part of getting directions to someplace else. Getting back to why accept reality, number three here is pain can't be avoided. It's nature's way of signaling that something is wrong. Number four, rejecting reality turns pain into suffering. Put a different way, pain without acceptance leads to suffering. Because there's things that I, I've experienced that are painful, but I don't experience them as suffering. Like I stubbed my toe and that's what happened and it sucks that it happened and it's really, really painful when it happens and I'm not still here ruminating on that experience. So there's, there's a way of interacting with our pain, i.e. <laughs> we don't accept our pain that turns it into suffering. Refusing to accept a reality can keep you stuck in unhappiness, bitterness, anger, sadness, shame, and other painful emotions. Acceptance may lead to sadness, but deep calmness usually follows. And finally here, why accept reality? The path out of hell is through misery. By refusing to accept the misery that is part of climbing out of hell, you fall back into hell. So like in my example of you being lost in a part of town that you don't like, that you don't want to be in, part of getting out of that place is moving through that place. Like you can't, we don't have the technology to teleport yet. So part of getting out of that part of town requires spending time in that part of town, moving, like walking or driving through those streets, even though you don't want to be in those streets. But like if I was stuck in a bad part of town and I refused to walk or drive or take a bus in that part of town, I would stay stuck there because that's the only way to get out is to take some method of transportation. <laughs> yeah, the path out of hell is through misery. By refusing to accept the misery that is part of climbing out of hell, you fall back into hell. Now, there are factors that interfere with radical acceptance, and I'm reading now from Distress Tolerance Handout 11a. Radical acceptance is not approval, compassion, love, passivity, or against change. That is not what radical acceptance is. But I think 
at least I have the assumption that if I accept a thing, it means that I like it, that I'm okay with it. So a lot of times I resist accepting because I think that it means that I liked what happened. And that is not the case. So there are some factors that interfere with acceptance. And those include, one, you don't have the skills for acceptance. You do not know how to accept really painful events and facts. Two, you believe that if you accept a painful event, you are making light of it or are approving of the facts and that nothing will be done to change or prevent future painful events. So that's the thought process I was just describing for myself. Number three, emotions get in the way. And I'm going to insert the word nearly here, but nearly is not part of the original text. So emotions get in the way, nearly unbearable sadness, anger at the person or group that caused the painful event, rage at the injustice of the world, overwhelming shame about who you are, guilt about your own behavior. And the reason I put nearly unbearable there is because emotions can't kill us. They may feel like they can, but we can feel our emotions and not die. So emotions are bearable, even if they feel like they aren't. And then another thing that gets in the way of acceptance, and this comes from my first DBT instructor, a lack of a real understanding of what you're accepting. So I don't have to accept that my dad sucks at validation. That's a judgment. And accepting that's not actually going to stop my pain from turning into suffering. We need to accept the facts. I need to accept the facts. And if you don't have practice in this, this is actually very challenging because I've collapsed my thoughts about a thing with the facts of that thing. And my thoughts about something aren't fact. It is a fact that I have the thoughts, but the thoughts I'm having don't necessarily point to fact. Like my dad can invalidate me and I can have the thought, my dad's a jerk. It is a fact that I had that thought. And what actually happened was not my dad being a jerk. What actually happened was my dad invalidated me and I felt pain that he invalidated me and I judged him for invalidating me. And I felt angry because I judged him for invalidating me. Like all of those things are facts, but it's treating my thoughts as thoughts rather than treating them as indicative of fact. This is nuance. I understand it's nuance. Let's get back to the clip here because I think I'll explain it a little bit more. So listening back to the recording you just heard, I was asking the question, what would I do if I accepted that my dad cannot validate me, cannot understand my experience, cannot see how bad it is, cannot understand how bad it is. So those are the facts that my dad cannot validate me and has not, that he cannot understand my experience, that he cannot see how bad it is, and that he cannot understand how bad it is. But in listening back to this, I realized that I didn't explicitly say a huge part of the facts that I need to accept. Another fact is I don't have the ability to not be triggered by invalidation. Put another way, currently I am always triggered by invalidation. So my full question here is what would I do if I accepted that my dad doesn't have the skill of validation and that I am always triggered by this? And that's the question that I answered in the recording you just heard. I, I didn't ask it that way, but that's the question that I answered. And my answer was, the thing I would do is I would stop confiding in him about how I feel and I would stop sharing my experiences with him. So now, on to the next clip, which is a few minutes later. And the opening is a little hard to hear. What I say is, <laughs> okay, I'm fucking annoyed right now because something just occurred to me. So past joy, take it away. Okay, fucking annoyed right now. Because something just occurred to me. If I take action consistent with accepting that my dad does not validate, cannot understand my experience the way I want him to, then what that leaves is all that energy that I spent 
focusing on finding exactly the right argument to convince him to explain it, finding the perfect words, the perfect analogies, the perfect access point and entry to have him get it. All of that energy I spent doing all of that can be spent on something else, like actually learning how to validate myself, my own experience, fully getting my own experience, practicing, accepting that my experience is valid and is caused and comes from somewhere. And that's really fucking scary. And focusing all my energy on trying to convince my dad, trying to explain it to him, finding the perfect metaphors and all that was distracting me from learning how to do it for myself. God, this annoys me. Um, kind of like how using training wheels on a bicycle. There's a reason we start there. Though increasingly we're actually moving away from training wheels and doing those like little balance bikes without pedals for kids. But historically, there was a reason we started with training wheels. And at some point, continuing to use training wheels means that it's actually preventing us from learning how to pedal and cycle with balance ourselves. And there's a reason we use training wheels. There's a reason that people have different timelines for stopping using training wheels. There's a reason people may always use training wheels. I mean, like, all of these responses to products online that are like, a self-tying shoe, how lazy are people? They're accessibility things. Because there are people who will always need that support. And all of the, the criticism around it is, is judgment, assuming laziness rather than an accessibility issue. And I'm realizing, like, I've been attached to my dad validating me, and I've started all of these fights. Like all of these conversations where I was like pushing, pushing, pushing. I really need him to get my experience because I didn't have the skill to do it for myself, which is why I was so attached to him doing it for me. And he's also the cause, the source of, the biggest source of my invalidation. So it was twofold, my attachment to him validating me. If he's validating me, he's no longer harming. And if he validates me, he can heal past invalidation. It addresses this attachment I have that he validate me, like this desire for him to validate me because he's the one who's hurt me with his invalidation so much. So I have it that it means more. If I can get him to see it, it means more. It's like super validation if he can validate me. Well, I guess it's threefold. If he can validate me, I don't have to learn how to do it for myself. I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed at this. Like if I accept that he does not validate and that he cannot ever fully understand my experience to the degree that I want him to, that he does not currently understand my experience to the degree that I want him to, that he has not in the past understood my experience to the degree that I want him to, and he will never be able to understand my experience to some degree. I don't know if he will always be this unskillful around it. He might get better, and it is physically impossible to, for anyone to fully understand my experience all the way down to the bottom because nobody else has my experience. There will always be some disconnect there. And I have friends who get really super fucking close, like to the point where I'm like, that is great. I do not have the experience that I'm missing out, that there's this big gap. I feel fully understood, not fully understood, but mostly understood. And the gap is a gap that I'm like, well, that's a reasonable gap though. Like it makes sense to me and it doesn't bother me. Whereas with my dad, the gap is like the Grand Canyon. Like he does not understand what it's like to be a 
a um, marginalized gender. He doesn't understand what it is to experience sexual violence. He doesn't understand what it's like to have a mental illness. He doesn't understand what it's like to have a disability. He doesn't understand what it's like to have a non, like to have a marginalized sexual orientation. He doesn't understand like relational trauma. Yeah, there's just a lot of things he doesn't get. And he also doesn't understand what it's like to experience religious trauma. So like all of these major factors that like impact my life and that I carry with me, even when I'm processing them, like I, there's aspects of my trauma that I'm processed and like the scar is still there, even if it's not like causing daily distress um, or whatever. Like he doesn't understand what it's like to experience life through those lenses. And I mean, I have my gaps too, right? Like I will never understand what it's like to experience life as a marginalized race as an oppressed race. Um, to be of a race that does not have institutional power, I will never understand that, what that's like. To, to the full extent that one can, you know? I have access points because I experience oppression and marginalization in other ways. I'm like, I can be like, okay, because I have this experience of mine, I can have access your experience this way and at least understand that my experience is not all there is. I can understand that it is possible for people to have other experiences that I don't get because I have experiences that other people don't get. Where for some reason my dad cannot wrap his head around having an experience that, that isn't the standard, the quote-unquote norm, and also quote-unquote standard, to have an experience that isn't portrayed by literally every form of media on the planet. Like, and that's in big and, and little things. Like, remember the, the joy that my black friends had at, experience, at seeing Black Panther for the first time and the joy that a lot of my white women friends experienced seeing um, Wonder Woman for the first time of like oh my god this thing that I have never seen before is being honored and valued and represented okay fuck well if I if I accept that my dad cannot fully understand and validate my experience strike that if i accept that my dad cannot understand my experience to the degree that i want him to and has not understood my experience to the degree that i want him to if i accept that my dad does not validate my experiences and has not validated my experiences what would i do if i accepted those things I would have to figure out a way to do it for myself. Fuck, 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 fuck. Right? Fuck. God, this annoys me. And I keep asking the question, and my sister, hi Ruth, also asked this question of like, what would I do if my dad was no longer alive right now? Like, there would have to be ways, I would have to have a way of healing that does not require his presence that does not require his input because there has to be a way for me to heal. When people die, those people have hurt me, right? So I've had all this attachment to finding exactly the right words and exactly the right explanation that will have him get it. And if I don't do that anymore, like, what would I do with all that energy? I would need to learn how to validate myself. That feels really threatening. I don't like that. Like I'm noticing fear come up. Um, I'm noticing the thought that it won't be enough. That I have this kind of like euphoria of relief 
when somebody else finds the words for me and I'm positing, hypothesizing that that euphoria is because, specifically because I don't have the ability or the practice, the skill of finding the words for myself, which is why it feels so good when somebody else does it. But I'm, I'm collapsing that with the belief that it only feels good when somebody else does it. Just because it's only felt good in the past because somebody else has done it doesn't mean it can't feel good in the future because I do it for myself. And that's not entirely true either because my statement that it's only ever felt good in the past when other people have done it, I've recorded an experience of me validating myself in the past. Those um, Facebook posts I recorded explaining my experience of my anniversaries, those were me validating myself. And they were pretty damn good. And I experienced relief. There was this validation euphoria, I guess, of like, oh my god, somebody said it in exactly the right way, and it was me. Um, and this attachment, god, I hate all of this so much, this attachment to finding the right words to explain myself hasn't been for my own benefit. It's been so that other people will understand, specifically other people who are hurting me will understand. Like my entire motivation in understanding my experience has been to convince other people so that they will stop invalidating me. Oh God, this doesn't feel good. This is uncomfortable. Okay. Yeah, like even those Facebook posts, the motivation behind it was to explain it to other people so that they would get it. And what would happen if I refocused that energy on explaining it to myself so that I can get it? That feels really threatening. Having the thought that that is really threatening because It leaves me open to invalidation, right? Right, because all this time, me explaining it to other people is a defense mechanism because if I can explain it in such a way that they get it, then they can validate me and stop invalidating me. The main goal, like I'm using their validation as a defense mechanism against their invalidation of me. So like me validating myself, having the thought, well, that still doesn't solve my problem of the other people invalidating me. And then I'm having the thought that if I were really fucking skilled at self-validation, it would not be as threatening to receive other people's invalidation. Like I would be unfuckwithable. I mean, as much as anybody can be, I guess. Because we're I'm like, we're still impacted by what other people do and say. Um, it's just the degree to which that happens is something that I think I can acquire skills around that would make a difference for me. Okay. Interesting. I don't like this. Okay, so a lot was going on there, and on top of what I was saying, there was a lot of other sound. So to summarize, I was realizing that I haven't been accepting that A, my dad doesn't have the skill of validation, and B, I don't have the ability to sit with invalidation and not be triggered. And because I was not accepting that those two things were true... <laughs> I was totally attached to forcing my dad to stop invalidating me. I was trying to force my dad to stop invalidating me. And I was trying to force him to validate me. And I was trying to achieve three goals by doing this. One, if I can force him to validate me, 
that stops his invalidation. Like if he's validating me, he's not invalidating me. Two, if he's validating me, that helps heal instances of when he's invalidated me in the past. And three, this one's painful. I don't like this one. Forcing him to validate me means I don't have to learn to validate myself. So what is there for me to accept? As I've said before, the facts and only the facts. My dad is bad at validation is not a fact. It's a judgment. So in the recording you just heard, I reframed it in a non-judgmental way. I said that my dad has not had the skill of validation to the degree that I wanted him to in the past. And my dad currently does not have the skill of validation to the degree that I want him to, like in the present. And we can extrapolate that even further, that he hasn't had and doesn't have the skill of validation to the degree that I want him to in the areas that I want him to have it. Because if I tell him he's bad at validation, he'll give me a bunch of examples where he does validate and he does use that skill and he would be correct. So I need to get more specific. It's not that he doesn't have the skill at all. It's that he doesn't have the skill to the degree that I want him to in the areas that I want him to have it. And another part of the facts that I need to include in what I'm accepting is that I have feelings about his lack of skill around validation. That's part of the facts. I do have feelings about it. I am impacted by his lack of skill around validation. I have judgments about it. I have thoughts about it. It feels painful to me. And all of these things are part of the facts. So (laughs) let's get the whole phrase in here. What I need to accept is that my dad has not had and doesn't currently have the skill of validation to the degree that I want him to have it in the areas that I want him to have it in. And that feels painful to me. And I have feelings, thoughts, and judgments about this lack of skill, which is a fuck ton more words than my dad sucks at validation. (laughs) But here's something I'm noticing. I didn't even write this down in my commentary notes. I'm just coming up with this on the fly here. My dad sucks at validation is a lot harder to solve because the problem is very vague. Whereas my dad has not had and doesn't currently have the skill of validation to the degree that I want him to in the areas I want him to have it. And that feels painful to me. And I have feelings, thoughts, and judgments about his lack of skill. Like there's things I can do about that. And we'll get to that in a second here. So let's ask the whole question. What would I do if I accepted that my dad has not had and doesn't currently have the skill of validation to the degree that I want him to have it in the areas that I want him to have it in. And that feels painful to me. And I have feelings, thoughts, and judgments about his lack of skill. What would I do if I accepted all of that? And that's what I answered in the recording you just heard. I said that I'd put up boundaries for myself in my relationship with my dad. And those boundaries would look like me choosing not to confide in him about how I'm feeling And what I'm thinking about, like therapy, trauma, healing, the state of the world. And I didn't say this in the recording, but I'm saying it now. Concurrently with doing that, with putting up those boundaries, if I accepted that big, long-ass sentence, I would also practice self-validation so that I get way better at it. And I would also work on healing from past invalidation that I've experienced. And I'd also want to heal from past invalidations that I've experienced. So I mentioned that I'm real, (laughs) I'm shit at self-validation. I'm not skillful at self-validation, which is not entirely true. In the recording you just heard, I mentioned Facebook posts where I validated myself on my trauma anniversaries. And you can actually go and listen to those. Um, That's in this series on trauma anniversaries that I did, which is episodes 14 through 16. and those posts specifically are in episode 16. So it's not that I don't have the skill. It's that I'm not reliable to practice the skill and I'm not getting better at it, I guess. And, oh God. Okay. 
And listening back to the recording that I just played, I physically gulped when I heard myself say, my entire motivation in understanding my experience has been to convince other people so they will stop invalidating me. (laughs) And as soon as I heard myself say that, I was like, oh, that doesn't feel good. And of course, in the recording, I said, that doesn't feel good. So at least I'm consistent here. I think that's part of why self-validation doesn't typically feel great is because most of the time when I'm doing it, it's like a dress rehearsal for how to convince somebody else of my experience. Like that's my underlying motivation rather than my underlying motivation being exclusively seeing how my own experience makes sense for, for no other reason but that, just for myself. Because it really doesn't feel good to validate myself with the intention of using that to convince other people. So what is there to do about this? Fucking observe again. The answer is always observe. Observe when I'm motivated by convincing other people that my experience is valid. Observation's almost always the first step. <laughs> like in practicing non-judgment, the first step is to notice that I'm judging not do anything about it, just notice it. The first step of radical acceptance is notice you're out of acceptance. You're not accepting. The first step in a ton of skills is notice that you're not using the skill. So the thing for me to do is notice when I'm seeking external validation, when I'm trying to convince other people of my experience. And I'm annoyed by this because... That means there's something that I can do to shift my experience instead of blaming everyone else and making it their fault so that I don't have to take any action. I'm fucking annoyed. And since I've made that recording, like seven months ago, I've been working on noticing that when I'm seeking validation from others. And you know what? I'm really ineffective at it. I don't notice it right away, or even close to right away. More often than not, my sister is the one who points it out to me. So this tells me something. Not that it's pointless, and that I'm just going to always suck at it, but rather it tells me that I haven't been practicing in a way that's actually effective. Because I know that I can learn how to notice something. I have learned how to notice things in the past. And in order to do that, the thing that had me be effective was I needed a search image. Like when I learned to notice judgments, I had a list of what judgments look like. Things like should and shouldn't, fair or unfair, right or wrong, name calling, like calling someone an asshole. And there's more on this in episodes 4, 7, 17, 20. You know, most of my episodes touch on this, so, but those are the the four big ones. What I think I've been ineffective at is identifying the hallmarks of what it looks like when I'm seeking external validation. I'm not clear on what that is, what it looks like. So the first step is to determine what the search image needs to be so that I can notice it in the future. And in fact, I do know one thing, because I've noticed this while I've been doing exposure therapy, ruminating. Like I practice counter arguments or I practice convincing in my mind. I rehearse what I would say to convince someone. And it feels like being on a hamster wheel. There's something very hamster wheel like about what my brain feels like in those moments because there is no start and end point. It's just spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. It's like being in a maze with no entrance or exit. I can keep walking, I can constantly be like moving my body and still not make any headway. So that's a thing I can start to notice and get more effective at when I'm churning like that. So yes, I'm going to wrap up now because I'm really fucking tired and my voice hurts. Before I end, I wanted to mention that if you like this content, you think it's useful... It would be fucking awesome if you contributed to my Patreon. There's a link in the description. I don't have much to give in terms of like 
bonus material or anything. I give I give my Patreon subscribers a shout out. Um, so a shout out to my sisters, Anne and Ruth, for contributing. But yeah, there's a couple different levels and it actually makes a lot of difference in me being able to afford to host this podcast and keep it going. So uh, yeah, consider doing that. And also if you have questions, comments, concerns, clarifications, other things that start with a K sound, you can email me or at me at any of my social media channels. Links for those are also in the description. And because I never really know how to end this, I'm just going to end it in my usual way, which is super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.